Very good, three o'clock. So we can now start. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa and if you haven't heard me uh, teach this Sutta class before, you know that I always have so much respect to the Buddha's teachings. I always proceed it by just paying homage to the Buddha by saying Namo Tassa three times. Now, I know that where I'm at, up to with the uh, word of the Buddha uh, is the uh, four Satipatthana. And I think you also know I prefer the rendition for Satipatthana, not as focuses, not as um, foundations of mindfulness. Because if there is a foundation of mindfulness, what actually causes mindfulness to become strong? And it is actually, it's a lovely way of saying it, is that the first six factors of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path can be looked upon as, you know, get uh, factor number one perfect, and that makes number two, three, four, five, six, and then seven uh, becomes pure. So you do need to have those first factors of the Eightfold Path, they're strong, and then that is kind of the foundation of mindfulness. But more than that, I notice we have mindfulness, where do we put that mindfulness on? And this is why I prefer to call this the four focuses of mindfulness. I'm not so concerned with the, uh, the meaning of like the word patana, you know, the sati patana, because you know, many of these words actually do change their meaning. It's how they use which is important. Many of the English words, you know, they change their meaning. And a good example of that, I don't ever need, want to offend anybody, but the word like gay. You know, and when I was born, the first few years, someone who was gay was someone who was very lively and happy. And these days it has a different meaning. So every word does change its meaning over time. But I like to understand the meaning of the word by how it's used. Let the context define the word. And I think it's very nice to call Satipatthana focuses of mindfulness. Once mindfulness is established, where do you put that mindfulness? And that's why I call it the four focuses of mindfulness. And the reason why I've gone back to the beginning of this translation of the four focuses of mindfulness is because uh, at the very beginning it shows you what we're supposed to do what these four focuses of mindfulness are supposed to require, which also applies to every one of the practices of the four focuses of mindfulness. And because we always uh, have to abbreviate some of these uh, teachings, sometimes people forget that before even we do the mindfulness of the mind objects, which I'm supposed to teach today, before we even do that, we're supposed to have fulfilled the requirement, having restrained the five hindrances, 
you abide aware of mind objects, energized, knowing the purpose of what you're doing, and mindful. I think that's on the screen there, number four. Yeah, is it? Good, yes. So that's why I just went to the beginning over there. So this is understood to apply to all of the practices of mindfulness. And I think keep that in mind because when you actually go down to Yeah, just go down here. How are you mindful of mind objects? That it implies, it's not stated specifically here, but it is understood to mean that having, uh, was it weakened or was it abandoned the five hindrances? Uh, having, uh, can I have that one as well? I'll just, and I can go down here. So. I don't want to miss out any words. Here we go. Having restrained the five hindrances, you abide aware of mind objects, energized, knowing the purpose of what you are doing, and mindful. It's having restrained the five hindrances, you know the purpose of what you are doing. Those two factors there also apply to mindfulness of mind objects. And the first practice in the mindfulness of mind objects is you are mindful of mind objects in terms of the five hindrances. They've always been already supposed to have restrained the five hindrances. And that's an important thing to remember because you cannot be fully aware of the hindrances when they're in operation. The hindrances are there and you're our mindfulness is weakened and distorted sometimes. That's what the, uh, uh, the five hindrances do. They weaken your stillness and they weaken your wisdom. So this is why you can understand the translation of even the first part of mindfulness of the five hindrances. When there was wanting regarding the five senses, you are mindful that there was such wanting. When there is no wanting regarding the five senses, you are mindful that there is no such wanting. You also understand how such wanting arises and how to let go of such wanting and how such wanting does not arise in you again. So this is actually how we practice this. You cannot really be truly mindful when wanting is active in you. Is it working okay? Oh yeah, I'll turn the fans off, yeah. No fans, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. When there are many bosses, one moment <laughs> the fan is on, one is off. One it goes this way, once it goes that way. It's just, you know, the, the science which I already knew is that once the aircon is there, it creates some cool air and the cool air goes down, it settles down, and the hot air actually rises. And so when you actually turn the fans on, it mixes everything up. 
so we get it doesn't cool down where you're sitting as much. So that's why we keep the, the fans off and we should feel a little bit cooler. Such is what my science says. Anyway, so when there was wanting regarding the five senses, you were mindful that there was such wanting. You're actually looking back. I know many people say we should be in the present moment, but the present moment also has this thing which we call pachawekananyana, the reflecting back. And this is just, you know, just a few moments ago when wanting was active and now it's not, then you can actually know what it's like to have wanting, what it felt like. Please always know how time works uh, in the meditation process. And because of that, you are mindful that when there is no such wanting, how it feels, you understand how wanting arises. You see the process of wanting, the cause of wanting. And you are mindful of how such uh, wanting uh, disappears. I've written down here how to let go of such wanting and how such wanting doesn't arise again. I'd never mentioned what the answers to those questions are. What causes wanting? When you are meditating and you're just sitting there aware of this moment, what causes wanting? Restlessness is uh, part of describing the wanting arising, but why? Why are people restless? And a lot of times it is because they can't be content. They want to be somewhere else. And sometimes they think where you are right now is not good enough. So you want to be somewhere else. Even sometimes, you know, you can see this you're having a lovely meditation, nice and peaceful, but you want to go to the next level, whatever the next level is. As soon as you want something more, as an old philosopher said, you cannot enjoy what you already have. It's a strange thing. And when you let go of wanting, peace and stillness come. The goal of such wanting is achieved when you let go of it, not when you encourage it. So you understand how wanting works. It's the first hindrance. And understand and be able to watch it, be observe it, as best you can, especially when the wanting has vanished, then you can really observe it. Then you understand how this works and how the five hindrances you know, keep you on a much lower level of, of, um, of uh, peace and wisdom. The other thing which sometimes, because we don't really know what we're supposed to be doing in meditation, Sometimes people are just wanting to watch the breath, but the mind doesn't want to watch the breath. And therefore you have a conflict and therefore you get tense, no satisfaction, no contentment. It's one of the reasons why, those of you who have heard me teach meditation a lot, you sit down and you let the mind be peaceful and quiet. And I've said this many times, I say it again because it's an important part of the meditation practice. Even something like the breath, if you want to watch the breath, it will always be very difficult. You just let the mind be peaceful. 
the breath comes to you. I don't say you want the mind to be peaceful, you let it be peaceful. It's very, very different. The same when there being aversion in you. That you are mindful that there was aversion, when there is no aversion, you are mindful that there is no such aversion. You also understand how aversion arises, how to let go of such aversion, and such aversion doesn't arise in you again. You know, when you are meditating, sometimes we aim for the wrong things. Sometimes we aspire, you know, to get peaceful, to get into a first jhana or you know, to get you know, nimittas or whatever. But if that is your aim, if you want that, then when it gets difficult, you get aversion. I don't like being here. I'm averse to being here, I want to be somewhere else. So again, one of the reasons why often on meditation retreats, I ask people when you're meditating, are you happy to be here? And if you can answer yes, honestly, you're happy to be here no matter where you are, then you'll find the meditation becomes peaceful and still. If you want to be somewhere else, you're creating just not wanting, but also aversion as well. When there was dullness and drowsiness in you, this is a Tina Mita. The Tina Mita, I think you can understand roughly what it is. One is the physical lethargy, one is the, the mental lethargy. Physical sort of lethargy or tiredness, whatever you wish to call it. Often you can find the physical reasons of that. You're mindful, understand how such tiredness arises and how to let go of such tiredness and how such tiredness doesn't arise again. And a lot of time the physical tiredness you know, obviously comes from you not eating enough, it may be too hot in the room, you may not have slept well that night, there's many things, you've been working too hard, basically you know, your brain is tired. That's one of the reasons why often that when you wish to uh, do lots of meditation, make sure that you're well rested first of all. So the mind isn't, the body isn't so tired. And the uh, mental tiredness, the mental tiredness is because we, the first two hindrances happen so often, that weakens the mind. When you want, when you don't want, that mind is kind of stretched and has to work hard. Imagine that you don't want anything in the whole world you have no aversion. You may not think you're getting anywhere at this moment, but your mind is resting and the mental tiredness is getting less and less and less and less and less and less and less. And soon you find yourself getting this energized mind. And of those two, the energized mind and the energized body, the energized mind is always so much more powerful. You can have an energized mind and a very tired body. The energized mind is much stronger. That's one of the reasons why sometimes you can get up in the middle of the night and just meditate. Body may not have had enough sleep, but the mind is just so energized. So you understand dullness and drowsiness. You understand how such dullness and drowsiness arises and how such dullness 
and drowsiness uh, d disappears, how to let go of it, and how such dullness and drowsiness doesn't arise again. And then we have the restlessness and remorse. The remorse, you know, it took a long time for me to actually to accept but that's what that second part of the fourth hindrance means. Restlessness you can kind of know, but remorse, that is when there's something you may have done or not have done which worries you, which gives rise to this feeling of you're not good enough, you don't deserve peace and happiness, you want to be kind of punished. That kind of remorse, that is one of the other parts of restlessness, which is really common in our Western world. I think you all know the story when I first came across that, or a meditator over in uh, Bodhinyana Monastery in the early days. She was getting some great meditation, but you know, right on the edge of jhanas, and I was counseling her, and I was just waiting for the day. She'd come up and say, yeah, I've, I've gone into the jhana. She was so close, but she could never actually take that last step until eventually, you know, she told me, she said, I didn't think I deserved to get a jhana. There was some remorse she had, something from the past. And every one of you may have such remorse about something or other. If you do, please remember some of the Buddha's great teachings like on, on um, forgiveness, letting go of the past. Otherwise, it's a hindrance for you. How does remorse arise in the first place? You're not perfect and you expect yourself to be perfect. So don't get sucked into that. Learn how to let go of remorse. Now you're learning. So when you make a mistake, you don't hide it and be ashamed of it as much as you recognize it and learn from it and forgive yourself. And then the fifth hindrance, which were mindful of mind objects in terms of the five hindrances, when there was doubt in you, you were mindful that there was such doubt. When there is no such doubt, you are mindful that there is no doubt. And you also understand how such doubt arises and how to let go of doubt and how doubt doesn't arise again. And I must admit, personally, that's the most difficult hindrance to understand and then let go of. Because it was something which one of the ancient Greek philosophers said, no one ever thinks they are wrong. No matter how foolish you are, at that time you think you're right. It's only afterwards you know you, know you were wrong and you were right about that, that you were wrong. So in this moment, the way we think, we always think we're right. In this moment. So how can you know about what doubt is? And when you do have good perceptions and good thoughts, they do feel a different quality than when there is doubt present. It's Please excuse me, but it's hard to explain these things except by just you know, personal experiences. And that was the first time when I got early memories 
I can't say about past life memories, but that early life memory when I was back in my crib as a baby, only a few weeks old. And you know, in meditation, what's my earliest memory? And this came up. And the weird thing about that experience, which I can recall very clearly to this day, was there's absolutely no doubt that was actually me. I didn't need to check it out because the experience was so different than anything else I'd ever had. It had a different quality to it. And I used to tell people I shared that experience with, there was no doubt there at all. Why? And the reason was because that thing which we call doubt was actually absent. So this is something which is not a part of thinking, it's a part of this factor of the mind which can, cannot stay still and which is always questioning is this real or is this not real? That was totally absent. So you understand what these five hindrances are. And the Buddha gave his own similes here. First of all, of wanting. Suppose you took out a loan and your business was successful. Then you repaid that loan and there was enough left over for your own enjoyment and for that of your family. As a result, you'd be glad and full of joy. That's actually the simile for the first hindrance. Wanting. You don't want anything anymore. There's enough, in this case, money for your own enjoyment, that of your family. You'll be glad and full of joy. Wanting has disappeared. Or suppose you were very ill and you couldn't eat or sleep and had no strength. Later, however, you recovered. You could eat and sleep again. You regained your strength. As a result, you'd be glad and full of joy. So that's like looking at um, ill will or aversion as a sickness. Or suppose you were imprisoned and later were released, safe and secure, with no loss to your property. As a result, you'd be glad and full of joy. And that is a simile for sloth and torpor, like the mind is in a prison. It just you know, cannot do anything. It's restricted, constrained by the uh, sloth and torpor. Or suppose you were a slave dependent on others, unable to go where you want, then later you were released from slavery, independent of others, able to go where you want. As a result, you'll be glad and full of joy. And that's a simile for restlessness and remorse. Or if you're in a prison, always being told when to get up, when to go to sleep, what you can do, what you can't do being sort of restricted in that way. And same with um, the remorse. You feel you're not free, you don't deserve to enjoy the peace and beauty of meditation. It's like you're imprisoned. Or suppose you had to travel along a dangerous road across a wilderness, but later you would pass through that wilderness safe and secure with no loss to your property. As a result, you'll be glad and full of joy. This path, the spiritual path, you know it's a dangerous path. 
in the sense that many people teach so many different things. You really don't know which is the right path, which is the wrong path. But then it happens to you that you, know, you get enough experience, not just from experience, but sometimes your mind becomes so peaceful, so still, that you know that this is the right path. It's not through belief, through personal experience. Otherwise, people can go spend a lot of wasted time going to all sorts of paths which aren't going to lead to the goal. And it's a dangerous path, a spiritual path. It's a wilderness, sometimes there's not enough signs there to tell you which way to go. So once that doubt is gone, and you have this knowledge that this is the right path. And of course, that is a wonderful experience to have. So those were the Buddhist similes for the five hindrances. One of them, the first of all, wanting, the sensual desire is like taking out a loan. You have to pay it back later. And uh, aversion, being upset and angry at people or yourself, is like just sickness. Uh, sloth and torpor is like allowing your mind to be in a prison. It's restricted. Being a slave, you just you can't stay still. You always have to do what others tell you or some boss tells you. And the doubt is like not being sure and certain that the path you're going on is absolutely accurate. So, too, when these five hindrances were present, you look back upon them. You can't see them when they're there, otherwise they wouldn't be called hindrances. When they were present, you look back upon them as a debt, a disease, a prison, slavery, or on a dangerous road across a wilderness. But when these five hindrances have been abandoned, you regard that as freedom from debt, health, release from prison, freedom from slavery, and reaching a land of safety. Now I'm going to pause there to see if there's any questions from the audience here. Any questions anyone has? Yes? Yeah? Who did that translation? Oh, I just actually read it right here. Okay, it's not in my translation though. No, not your translation. Okay. Is the translation of worry incorrect for the It is sort of it's usually of something which you have done. Because they use that word kukacha uh, in um, the Vinaya a lot. And if a monk has done a mistake, broken a rule, then they can have kukacha the remorse about it. And they look back upon it, and I shouldn't have done that, or I hope I don't get found out, or you know, I might have hurt somebody else. You know, what, I, what can I do to overcome this? It does stir up the mind. And remorse, I think most uh, translators who have read the Vinaya Pitaka will see that word used so many times there, it's quite clear that it means not just worry, but remorse about some mistake you've made in the past. 
Okay. I'll just. Okay, so can I go on to the next part? The seven enlightenment factors. Sorry. This is the next part of the uh, Satipatthana, the fourth Satipatthana on mind objects. I just called it mind objects. If anyone can come up with a better um, word for this. But again, the category is defined by its contents. So the first was the five hindrances, the second is the seven enlightenment factors. I'll read these out, explain them first, and then I'll make some comments on why those are the first two in this category. And again, remember, for the seven enlightenment factors, it also means that you have um, weakened, you know, the five hindrances first of all. You know the purpose of what you're doing. I haven't explained that purpose of what you're doing yet, but I will do after reading this. Or you're mindful of mind objects in terms of the seven enlightenment factors. These are the Sata Bojanga. When the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is, is present in you, you understand that it is present. When the enlightenment factor of mindfulness was not present in you, you understand that it was absent. You also understand how there comes to be the arising of the absent enlightenment factor of mindfulness and how it comes to fulfillment by development. But I, th I thought this was Satipatthana, you're supposed to be mindful before you begin. And now it says you're supposed to uh, develop mindfulness. Sometimes when I look at these, I like to have a questioning mind. What it really means here is that you're aware as best you can about the different levels of mindfulness. Mindfulness is not just one thing, you're mindful or you're not mindful. How mindful are you? How penetrating is that mindfulness? How stable is that mindfulness? And it's one of the reasons why over many years I developed a category which is not in the suttas, of, but I can justify it from the suttas, of like powerful mindfulness and superpower mindfulness. In other words, the mindfulness has its different levels. And hopefully when you've gone on meditation retreats, you could have experienced those different levels of mindfulness. Sometimes after a good meditation in the evening, you can look at the night sky and it's absolutely gorgeous. You, you can see it with a greater power of mindfulness than you've ever seen it before. It's the same thing you're looking at, but your awareness is much stronger and more stable. You see more and you can understand more. It's the same like I often mention, even a person who's been on a party and they're drunk, somehow or other they can still find their way home. I still don't understand how that, that happens but they're not very aware of which way they're walking, but they eventually get to their place of residence. Even a drunken person has some mindfulness, but not much. There are different levels of mindfulness. So here I understand this factor. The mindfulness is present in you, you understand that it is present, but how it actually, when it's not present, you understand it's not present, that it was not present, and you also understand how there comes the arising of this absent enlightenment factor of mindfulness and how it comes to fulfillment by development. The mindfulness increases in its strength and its power and ability to penetrate things. Why is it that two or three people might be looking at the same phenomena? One person really sees it deeply, another person says, oh, it's just, you know, just a flower. 
sometimes your mindfulness gets so strong and you realize that how mindfulness needs to be developed and how it does become an enlightenment factor. And the second factor of these seven enlightenment factors, the enlightenment factor of exploring Dhamma is present in you. You know that sometimes that people ask me about the practice of insight, exploring things, thinking about things, contemplating things. You know, this factor is like Dhamma Wichiga. What does that actually mean? Thinking about things, I think many of you will know that you think, you know, in a very limited way, which is one of the reasons why that if you're in a university and you're learning psychology, you sometimes you can see just how your conditioning, your upbringing only allow you to perceive things in a certain way. And sometimes to really understand the Dhamma, it's not about thinking about it, it's about exploring. That's the best um, description which I've ever heard. And at this I'll do a simile which I'm sure many of you have heard or seen before. Now what is this which I'm holding up? Okay, yeah, okay, say a stick. Is that all it is or is there more? Instead of thinking about it and giving it a name and thinking it's a right name or a wrong name, you look at this, you explore it. You don't think about it. You explore, keep it in your mind, keep mindful of it. And it's amazing how you can see more things in it. You know, different things. I think I remember last time I did this, um, this little um, demonstration. You now one of the things which you know, I can see in this thing, which makes it very useful. <laughs> when I've got an issue back. <laughs> it's not just a gong bonger, it's Ajahn's back scratcher. In other words, when you can explore it, you see different ways of making use of it, different uh, parts of it. And this is actually what the enlightenment factor of exploring Dharma is. So it's not just seeing how you've been taught, we're going beyond that, past that. And any of you who are into innovation, which is an important part of people's work practices, that's what innovation does. You see things which other people have missed because they don't know how to be mindful. They just know how to think. When the enlightenment factor of exploring Dhamma is present in you, you understand that it is present. When the enlightenment factor of exploring Dhamma is not present, you understand it was absent. You also understand how there comes to be the arising of the absent enlightenment factor of exploring Dhamma and how it comes to fulfillment by development. The next thing, these get the really wonderful things. Once you explore the Dhamma, the Dhamma becomes, I'm not just saying this because I'm a monk, it becomes incredibly interesting. It's just not just dull at all. When people say, what do you do, how do you spend your weekend? I was in a monastery just meditating. Oh, that's boring, you should get a life. No. It can be incredibly fascinating and interesting, as many of you experience. Because when the enlightenment factor of exploring the Dharma is present, basically it develops the factor of energy is present in you. 
the energy you really are interested in what you're doing. You see so many things you never expected. And that energy makes, you know, why are you spending sort of an hour, maybe an hour and a half today on a really hot afternoon in this hall? Couldn't you be doing something better? Why are you here? And sometimes, if I'm doing my job as a teacher, it does energize you. You think, wow, this is fascinating. And after the enlightenment factor of energy, you understand if it was present, not present, if, the, if it was all dull. And you also understand how come, comes the arising of the absent enlightenment factor of energy and how it comes to fulfillment by development. And I will say here again, that this is an enlightenment factor. In other words, uh, people who are enlightened are not just dull and dead. You're enlightened, energized. And I used to see that many times with some of these old monks in Thailand. You know, they're really getting old, and you, you, know, you see them just sitting over there, and just they're not paying too much attention when people are asking them questions about their marriage, about the economy or something. But you ask them a question about Dhamma, and they lift their head up, and they become alive, energized. I remember seeing that with so many monks who were, you know, really great monks, enlightened monks. And that's just actually how it works. The energy is in there when you have the enlightenment factor, no matter how old you are. And when the enlightenment factor of joy is present in you, now this is pity. Now pity is, you now P long I T I. And this pity sometimes arises as tears in you. You get inspired. And I, sorry, I can't not have stories when I talk about this. There was, I think many of you know, um, Barbara and Ainsley. You know, they used to come here so often, but they're you know, getting old now. And not so they're not getting old, they are old. Uh, but, but I took them on a pilgrimage to India many years ago. And of course you have to have a, like a briefing, you know, before we actually get on the aircraft and go. And I told Barbara and Ainsley, look, some of these places in India have just got such powerful energy. And sometimes they just make you so inspired you tear up or you actually break out crying. Now, Ainsley was the basic Buddhist. Barbara, she used to be a Christian before, and I don't think she'd totally taken on Buddhism. She has now. But then when I said that some of these places may make you just really emotional and you burst out crying, <laughs> apparently she said, look, she was born in England. There's so many old places, castles, and you know, palaces and big mansions with lots of history behind them. She's been to many of those. They, you don't cry when you go into Buckingham Palace for a tour around. So she actually thought I was a crazy monk. But I always remember the first day we got into India and landed, I think, in Gaia. And that evening we managed to just have an hour or two uh, in the Mahabodhi temple in Bodh Gaya. And she went in there with her husband, Ainsley, and then she just burst into tears. Where on earth did that come from? 
She was so emotionally distraught. <laughs> and that's when in the evening she came to see me to ask forgiveness. She said, look, I'm sorry, I thought you were crazy. When you said you go in these ancient buildings and then you sort of get tear up, I thought you were crazy, but it happened to her. This is the pity. When that happens in meditation especially, they just allow it to happen. There's a few times, it's not often, because I don't have the opportunity these days to listen to other people talk, but sometimes you hear some monks talk and you listen to them and it just, I can't, I can't stop it. It really gets right inside of you and your eyes get all teary. I remember one of the last times I did that, there's this monk from Thailand, Ajahn Tui. He gave a talk at Bodhinyana Monastery and I couldn't help it. Just tears started rolling down my eyes. And he asked me afterwards, you enjoyed that talk, didn't you? I said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's gorgeous. This is like, sorry? That I cannot remember, just Dhamma. It was many years ago. And, but it was just a beautiful talk, the way he described it. And that just, you get so inspired that tears start to flow. And you know, I know enough about the Dhamma not to stop those tears, let them flow. They're beautiful. So that's, and it's not just the joy of crying, it's just the inspiration, the happiness you feel inside. This is not a physical pleasure. Sometimes it's manifested in the body like tears. But it's the, the emotional joy and inspiration. And to the monks especially, because they spend a lot of time in, in meditation, in Bodhinyana, that's an important part to feel inspired what you're doing and just what it means to other people, what it means to you. And sometimes you read out some of these suttas and say, oh wow, this is what the Buddha said. And that just, you're just walking the path which the Buddha walked. Please, I talk too much, but one of the things which always gets me is you know, when the Buddha, it's the next factor of enlightenment, uh, the next, um, uh, after the, right mindfulness, we talk about the jhanas. And when the Buddha described, what do the jhanas feel like? And he called it, you know, you come to this, maybe next time I do a, a sutta class, they called it sort of Sambodhi Sukha. And because, you know, I've spent my whole life as a Buddhist teaching, or actually most of my life, last 49 years as a monk, this means so much to me. And he says, Sambodhi Sukha. Sambodhi means enlightenment. It's not enlightenment, but it's how it feels. Even it's the first jhana experience. This is actually, we talk about Nibbana, enlightenment, but the way the Buddha called it, Sambodhi, Sambodhi Sukha, the happiness of enlightenment. And he gave that description to the joy you feel in the first jhana. And that just always gives me goosebumps, even now. Like goosebumps, a Western way of talking about um, pity. Great joy, happiness, inspiration, wow! And that's a wonderful thing to experience. So when the enlightenment factor of goosebumps are present in you, or you understand that it is present, when it's absent, you understand it's absent, 
you also understand how there comes to be the arising of the absent enlightenment factor of goosebumps, I mean pity, I mean joy, and how it comes to fulfillment by development. Good monks, good nuns who practice, good lame people who practice are happy. And when the enlightenment factor of tranquility is present in you, and tranquility is really amazing to see people who aren't moved by things in the world, by disappointments, or you know, when they get what they would want or they get beautiful inspirational things. You can still have a tranquil body and a tranquil mind. Do you sleep well at night? Is your body tranquil? Is your mind tranquil when you have nothing to do? You can sit down there, close your eyes, and the mind is at peace and tranquil. So it is uh, the enlightenment factor of tranquility. You understand when it's present in you, how it feels, what it means. And when it's not there, you understand it wasn't there. You understand how there comes to be the arising of the absent enlightenment factor of tranquility and how it comes to fulfillment by development. Or when the enlightenment factor of stillness, this is the samadhi, it's not concentration, stillness is present in you. The body is still, body doesn't need to move. And the mind is still, it doesn't think, it's just poised there fully mindful, hardly moving at all. When the enlightenment factor of stillness is present in you, you understand that it's there. The enlightenment factor of stillness is not present in you, you understand it was absent. And you also understand how there comes to be the arising of the absent enlightenment factor of stillness and how it comes to fulfillment by development how to develop that stillness, that samadhi. And then when the enlightenment factor of equanimity, equanimity is one way of uh, using the word upeka, but you know, lately I've been saying that doesn't have the emotional um, quality, it's just too bland. So I prefer these days using a word like contentment. The only reason I don't use the word contentment more often is that that word has usually been used for the, the party word santuti. But nevertheless, this is basically much closer to what it means. Beautiful feeling that there's no need to want anything in the whole world. And there's wonderful contentment and understanding why there's that contentment. You understand that it's present when the enlightenment factor of equanimity slash contentment was not present in you, you understand it was absent, you also understand how there comes to be the arising of the absent enlightenment factor of equanimity and how it comes to fulfillment by development. And these are the seven enlightenment factors. Now, I will pause that in some recensions of the Satipatthana Sutta, that's all they have for the fourth of the Satipatthana, the being mindful of Dhamma, of mind objects. Why? 
Then I have to thank Ajahn Sujato for informing me of this. And he was trying to find out what was the original Buddhism, what's been added, trying to find out what's really authentic. And in some of the oldest versions of the Satipatthana, that's all they have, these two factors. And the others, they're not wrong, the others, but it takes away the focus. Five hindrances, seven enlightenment factors. In other suttas, it's that these two are almost like opposites. The five hindrances are what we're supposed to abandon and in their place we develop the enlightenment factors. That's our path. And if you want to explain Buddhism that way, what is Buddhism? What is the practice of Buddhism? It's learning how to abandon the hindrances and develop the enlightenment factors. That's it, that's the path. And what happens afterwards is your enlightenment, enlightened. But I will pause now for some more questions if there are some. Okay. Sorry? The first, first one yeah, about... Re recollection of the Dharma or general mindfulness. Okay, um, which when the first enlightenment factor? Yeah, mindfulness. Or second one? The, sec the first one. The first one of mindfulness. Recollection of Dhamma is part of it. Because I'm glad you brought that up because you know, the meaning of mindfulness, as the Buddha often explained it, is sometimes neglected, and that is your memory of the Dhamma you know, becomes very strong. You, know, you can see things in terms of the Dhamma instead of like terms of what you know, you're taught in the in the worldly life. Now, sati also includes the memory of what the Buddha taught. And so recollection of the Dhamma is part of it. But it's not just recollection of the Dhamma, it's also being aware of what's really happening right now. With the definitions of mindfulness which have come in modern psychology, I always feel they're lacking something. And what they're really lacking is what you've heard me define mindfulness as is in this moment, abandoned past and future, and also silent. Because it's the descriptions through words which means you are not really seeing what's happening. You're seeing what you've, how you've been taught you know, to recognize these things like a gorgeous sunset. Why do you say it's a gorgeous sunset? Some of that has been conditioned into you. Instead of saying it's gorgeous, to see the sunset without the words. In other words, <laughs> in other words, in other words, uh, what I've often mentioned, I think even Friday night, no, living in a place like Bodhinyana Monastery. At night time during the, this summer time, this dry time, there's hardly any clouds. You go out at night and you see the stars. And they're really clear. Like that's like mindful, you're really aware, so clear of those stars. 
and especially if your mind has been peaceful, you don't. I used to know the names of them. I, you know, I, I studied astronomy. I was in the Cambridge Ast Astronom Astronomical Society. But when I became a meditator, I deliberately uh, forgot the names of the stars. And then I could actually see them much more clearly instead of their names. That's one of the reasons why the names, what someone's added to uh, the experience, sometimes um, stop the mindfulness from being, becoming strong. Does that make any sense to you? Eddie. Ajahn Brahm. It is said that the seven factors of enlightenment or the Bojangas, you know, yeah. has a very powerful healing effects. You know. yeah. It was said that when the when Buddha was sick, yeah. was it Ananda or Chunda recited the same factors and yeah. he got well, you know. And yeah. so are the senior monks who got sick, the Buddha recited and he got well, you know. And the reason was mm. because those monks understood exactly what those enlightenment factors meant. It's a reminding them Mm. You know, of those factors were present in those monks when they heard it at the time, and that was inspiring. Mm. It was the inspirational effect of mm. that, those words. Mm. Not just the chanting or the tone, mm -hmm. or the person who did the chanting. Mm. It was just reminding them of the beautiful That's Dhamma. right, yes, on the, yeah. So, but it's not that they, they, a lot of temples, okay, in Asian countries, yeah. okay, they, they regard the chanting as an effect, you know. Yeah. For my, I'm just, it's very in yeah. interesting thing. I think when, when, when someone chants this, okay, when you're sick, you know, you're desperate, isn't it? Yeah. So you record, first one, mindfulness, okay? There's mindfulness to help you. And then the second, am I right to know what I'm saying? Second one is the uh, recollection of the dharmas, you know? And then the energy arises in you, and then you feel joy. And then you feel tranquility from the disturbing effect you get from sickness, you know. Yes. Stillness and then equanimity. When you say equanimity means you are so what? You, you can allow is it this way, is it this way? the body to heal. That's one way of looking at it. Mm. It's good. Mm. But it's more powerful than that. It's like describing what enlightenment is. Mm. But is there any special sorry, it is very important. Is there any the, the Oh, the temple where I come from Malaysia, you know, yeah. they, they use, even the chan, you know, they think there's power in the chan. Sometimes there is, and sometimes I ask myself, you know, why when we do so much chanting and some people don't understand a word of what we're chanting, mm. why it does have some power. Sometimes it can be from the person who's giving that chant, they got some energy and power and they can use that chant as a vehicle, as a way of transporting that energy to the sick person. Sometimes it's because this is not the only life you've lived, mm -hmm. and some of that chant you can recall from the past. You know, maybe just not consciously, maybe subconsciously, it kind of rings a bell in your mind mm -hmm. and makes you kind of peaceful. Mm. So those, and sometimes the other thing, please excuse me, but this is my personal experiences, that sometimes there are such things as heavenly beings, devas, and when you chant this, sometimes even the heavenly beings 
can recognize these mm. are chants they mm -hmm. know very well and they, they come they love listening to them and so when that happens of course they come around and create a totally different energy in the mm. room so I know that sometimes people so you know, just to a fundamentalist Buddhist Ajahn Brahm but no there are such things as heavenly beings and devas and mm. that can have a huge effect so just quickly so it'll be doubly powerful you know, if someone chants and you react to it or mind you know you recall all these things, the Dharma. Yeah. Sometimes you don't know you're recalling it, but it's inspirational. Mm. Like you know, I mentioned, you know, Barbara, how on earth did she react in Bodh Gaya when the first time she entered there? It wasn't, she wasn't convinced by me at all. She actually rebelled against that suggestion that would have an emotional connection with her. And there's something obviously in her previous lives you see that and just, you don't know exactly why or what, it really brings up a huge amount of energy in you. Deep-seated. Mm. Now sometimes, you know, psychologists know about like trauma. And you see, in, <laughs> there's another lady, we used to, remember we used to do the retreats over in the uh, Redemptorist Monasteries Retreat mm. Center. There was this one lady that she had a very difficult time going to a Catholic school in Singapore. And when she went to this retreat center, which still had you no know, crucifixes all over the place, she said, I can't stay in here. And the memory of the past created this aversion inside of her which she couldn't sort of let go of. So she had to leave. That's a negative you know, memory of trauma. We also have the positive trauma, you know, the joy inspirations in your past. You go to some place and that sort of brings up some long hidden memory inside of you, even from the past, mm -hmm. which either insp can inspire you. You feel like you're coming home. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people have actually, you know, gone to sort of a monastery or a nun's monastery and they go there and they go, wow, mm -hmm. they get inspired, why? And it can't be just explained because it's a forest or there's good nuns there. There's something much deeper than that. Mm. It's actually resonating mm. with a deep memory of the past which they mm. cannot articulate, but it's mm. real. Sorry, I'm just sorry. It's yeah. very important. Does Ajahn Chah you know, emphasize on this in his teaching or...? Uh, <laughs> sorry. I'm just trying to recall that. Not always, no, very mm. rarely. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it kind of would. Mm. But you know, he had a, please excuse me, he had a great sense of humor as well himself. He wasn't serious. And I'm just gonna mention this story because I were talking about it recently. That why did he become a monk? Ajahn Chah, when he was a lay person, as a kid in the village he loved playing games. And one of the favorite games I had in the village, you know, was like playing monks and lay people. And he would always, you know, he was only about seven or eight years of age, he would always volunteer to play the monk. And he said all he would do, he would just find a nice rock, flat rock, and he'd sit on that, you know, higher than others, and he would get a brown rag and wrap it around him like he saw monks do. And all his friends would bring him like beautiful sweets and cakes, which he loved to eat. And that's like, like play. But he would eat those, <laughs> those things. And he said, 
That was why when he grew up he wanted to become a monk. Because <laughs> of the food. <laughs> of course, you know, we were just laughing at that. But then there was a lot, some truth in that as well. He'd remembered some of the pleasant things, not just the food, when you're a monk. Sorry, this last one, sorry. Then, the last we, one was the last sorry, one, but go on. Can we use this? No, it's important to me. Uh, some yeah. When we are sick, you know, okay? Can we use this seven factors of enlightenment during like a meditation? Reflect of course you can, yes. Mm. But the more you understand what they mean, the more power they have. Mm. Remember, they're the opposites of the five hindrances. So when the five hindrances are strong, they will obstruct the power of the, f of the seven enlightenment factors. Mm. Thank you, Ajahn Brahm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I read a biography of Ajahn Man. Oh, yes. And apparently he used to give Dharma talks or chant in the forest and all the divas would come up. Yeah. According to that biography. According to that one. But Ajahn Man was a great monk, but that biography is a little bit dodgy. So, <laughs> a lot of uh, monks, not just me, just really respect Ajahn Man a lot, but the biography is a bit what they call hagiography. You know the word hagiography? You can look it up in the dictionary. It's when a teacher passes away, and it's your teacher, and you always tend to exaggerate some of the things which they did and the words which they said. It's much more than that. So sometimes these are not a real biography. Because of that biography, which was written by Ajahn Mahabhura, that Ajahn Tate, who was also a very great monk, when he died, he decided to write his biography beforehand. So it became an autobiography. And because that meant that he could actually make sure that it was real and true. And that was a reaction to that uh, volume which you uh, mentioned. Okay. <laughs> Go on. Um, if mindfulness has memory embedded yeah. in it as a word, is that the memory of the Dharma? Is it the words of the Dharma? It could be anything or? that. It could be more than that? Yeah. Okay. The example which I give, you know, was. Uh, when I was at primary school, like 10 or 11 years of age, it was only a primary school, very poor school, but uh, it was the school, and there's lots of migrants there, which I, I keep forgetting his name, but he was an actor who became Professor Snape. What was his name? English actor. I think he was also in other movies as well quite a famous actor, but he also went to that school. And they also went to the, sorry? Alan Rickman, yeah. And I was actually quite surprised. He was in about four years before I was there, but from Derwentwater Primary School, his nickname was Dirty Water. <laughs> it was a very poor school. Lots of migrants there. From there, he also went to Latimer School where I went. So, you know, almost the same path. 
about four years ahead. But anyway, uh, at that school, I was in greenhouse. They just didn't really mean very much. But uh, we had always a yearly quiz. And I was representing greenhouse in the quiz. And then they asked this question, which I was the only one who knew the answer to in, in the whole school. You know, what was the name of, I think it was called like a, a female duck. And the answer was like a pen, P-E-N. And the weird thing about that, I also remembered when I learned that. It wasn't just you know, knowledge, it was a recollection of the time I was told that. And that was weird. This was a memory. I was obviously had you know, great understanding of mindfulness, even when I was small, you know, 10 or 11 years of age. That's one of the reasons, try and get kids to practice mindfulness. And then you only have to learn, listen to it once at school. And you remember it. So I'm a very efficient way of doing well in exams. Anyway, I'm just going to quickly talk about some of the other factors here. Because remember these last factors, five components of existence, six sense bases, they are not in all descriptions of the Satipatthana, but they're in this one. You are mindful of mind objects in terms of five components of existence, uh, such as form, experience, fate and perception, will that sankhara, and the six consciousnesses, the origin and disappearance. There's nothing wrong with that. Or the six sense bases, you are mindful of mind objects in terms of the six ex internal and external sense bases, like the eye and what the eye sees. Uh, and also understanding what ties you, the fetter that arises independent upon both the objects of sight and, and sight. We're not just we're not just attached or uh, sort of involved in just the objects of sight, we're just like seeing. You know, we'd rather see pleasant objects, but then if there's no pleasant objects, we still want to see, want to hear, you know, want to smell, want to taste, and want to feel. And the same with you know, all the sense bases. The Four Noble Truths, you're mindful of mind objects in terms of the Four Noble Truths. You all know the Four Noble Truths, don't you? If you do, you're all enlightened. <laughs> I love giving people on this one. The Buddha said, if you really understand the Four Noble Truths, fully understand it, then you're totally enlightened. So this is one of the reasons why we all kind of know the explanation of Four Noble Truths, but do you really know them? And once you really know them, then of course uh, you're totally enlightened. Summary of mind objects. Oh, in these, so I'll do this three again. First of all, that's five components of existence, six sense bases, and Four Noble Truths. Those are not in all versions of the fourth Satipatthana. There's nothing wrong with them, except it takes a focus away from, from the, what stops you being enlightened, 
you know, the five hindrances and the path of enlightenment, what actually happens when the five hindrances disappear, that these seven enlightenment factors happen. And of course the pleasure in those uh, enlightenment factors. So summary of mind objects. In these ways you are aware of mind objects, Dhamma, or you're aware that others' mind objects are the same nature as yours, or you abide aware of both your own and others' mind objects. This is just to make sure there's nothing special about anybody. How you perceive is how I perceive. How you suffer is how I suffer. That you know you can connect with everybody. Or else you are aware of what causes the arising of these mind objects. And a lot of times, that's, as they say here, attention. You abide aware that mind objects are of the nature to cease, when attention ceases. When you take away your attention from these things, it's not important anymore, then they cease. Or you abide contemplating the mind objects in their causal nature of both arising and ceasing. Just mind objects, that's all. Or else mindfulness is just mind objects. Impermanent suffering are not me, not mine, not a permanent essence. It is established in you to the extent necessary for mindfulness and wisdom, essential for liberation. And you abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how you are mindful of mind objects. So the summary of Satipatthana. So it was with reference to this that it was said, the four focuses of mindfulness lead in one direction only. That's actually the proper translation of ekāyana. It's not one path, it's just one going, leading one direction only. To the purification of beings, to go, going beyond sadness and crying, to the disappearance of physical and mental suffering, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbāna. Would you like to do that? For your purification, going beyond all sadness and crying, the disappearance of physical and mental suffering, to the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbāna. That's the Satipatthana. Next time I'm here, Nibbāna through Anapanasati. And that's a, a lovely little description because it's repeating the Satipatthana again. Anyway, that's what's coming next in a meditation center close to you at the earliest opportunity. So any, let's get some more questions, if there are any questions. Any questions from overseas? Yes, go on. I'll do the overseas ones first and then I'll remember you. Thank you. One, two, three, four. I was wondering if you could explain if and how kindness leads to meditation. Is it the only way to mindfulness meditation, enlightenment factor is there's no metta? Why is it? Of course metta is in there. Because the metta, the kindness is necessary for the establishment of even the first factor of the seven enlightenment factors which is like you know, meta, uh, for mindfulness itself. A lot of times, how do we overcome those obstacles like the aversion? 
And you've all heard me almost ad nauseum talk about the, the monster in the emperor's palace. And that monster was softened and shrank because of kindness. That's why kindfulness is a beautiful way of overcoming any of the aversion which happens and how it makes this present moment appear joyful and happy. It's part of uh, the cause for, for mindfulness to happen. You can't say it's the only way. The way to mindfulness, I did mention this, it arises because of the other enlightenment factor, not the other, the other uh, factors of the Eightfold Path, one, two, three, four, five, and six. What is the second the second uh, factor of the Eightfold Path? The Samasankapa, which I translate as right motivation. And there's three factors of that second factor of the Eightfold Path. And those three factors are renunciation, sometimes I call making peace, uh, kindness and gentleness. That's actually where metta, kindness, comes in on the Eightfold Path. And if you want to see that, I can scroll up to the second factor of the Eightfold Path. I'm going to scroll now. It's up here somewhere. Oh, you've got it, have you? No, you haven't. Ooh. So no, it's going to come soon. Whoops, gone too far. Oh, that's on my mind first now. Okay, got to go further up. But anyway, you'll soon find out it's not that far. Here we go, coming soon. Hey, no. Oh my goodness, no, that's the right speech. Here we go, right motivation. What now is right motivation? This is Samasankapa, second factor of uh, the Eightfold Path. Actions of body and mind arising from a motive of renunciation, arising from a motive of kindness, arising from a motive of gentleness. This is called right motivation. So that's actually where this comes in, in the Eightfold Path. Number two, and that's one of the reasons why the mindfulness will not be strong if any of those factors of the Eightfold Path or the first six are weak. I hope that answers the question. Dear Ajahn, the doubt is, is it only about Buddha's teachings or also other doubts as personal doubt? Thanks. It's specifically mentioned the doubt concerning the Buddha's teachings and the practice of them. But you know, when that doubt uh, is overcome, you can experience so many other things in life, clearly, you know, what things are. In other words, even mention this like in science, because I was a scientist before. How do you know that what you're seeing and experiencing is real? You know, we interpret things a lot. And ask any psychologist, we interpret things and they are bent by what we want to see, what we don't want to see. So I also do things like marriage ceremonies and blessings. When I do a marriage blessing, 
you know, you ask the, the girl, oh, I says, I'm so lucky, he's such a great guy. And I asked the, the guy, I said, it's a beautiful girl. And a couple of years later, truth starts <laughs> to come in. You know, to tell them, they're not the best person in the world, but they're pretty good. And you're honest enough to see the faults as well as the good qualities. And the faults are just not that bad. So you can live with them and grow with those. And they don't become a big hindrance when you're honest. But some people refuse to admit that. Your partner in life is not perfect. It feels like that at first. But then the truth starts to come in. But you don't need to get divorced. You know, that's probably the best you can get. So I told this one couple once, you know, she told me all the faults about her husband and he told me all the faults about her. I said, wow, you're a perfect match. You're both <laughs> pretty bad. <laughs> anyway, is letting go of the five hindrances the same as letting go of the sense of self? Now that is a very good question. And the reason it's a good question is yes. Because once those five hindrances disappear, I mean, what is the self? It's not what it is, but what it does. And confine it by its function, not what it actually is. And the sense of the self is that which tends to control things, own things. And when you own something, you want it, you, you control it. It's your responsibility. When you realize you don't own anything, and you don't want anything. When you don't want anything, you let go, but your sense of self disappears as well. Excellent question. If everything is mind-made, are the four elements mind as well? Is medicine and science mind-made? Trying to understand how we create matter and how does it work? Another good question. And I would say yes. What is matter anyway? Is that actually something which is real, which is stuff, which is hard? As a scientist, you know, sometimes, you know, they was told the, this piece of wood which this computer is resting on, there's hardly anything there. The spaces between the molecules, the spaces between the atoms in those molecules, the same distance between the particles in those atoms and the subatomic particles in those atoms is so huge. There's actually hardly anything here. Instead of actually just stuff, it's just the forces interacting between this uh, computer and the wood which stops it falling through. And I, was, I loved some of these things about science which has taught me there's so much which I just don't feel, don't see, don't know, which is actually quite important. Even though all these... Oh well, oh, crikey. It's such a long time since I talked about this or studied this. That's right, neutrinos. Neutrinos is subatomic particles which are pouring from the sun. And they're going right through you, billions of them right now. Because they don't interact with other types of matter, you don't even feel them. And even the Earth, the Earth is just like, doesn't exist as far as the neutrinos are concerned because they go right through. And there's billions going through you right now. You will never know, because you don't interact with them at all. And ask any scientists, any scientists here? Astrophysicists, cosmologists, 
I like stuff like that because it changes the way I look at the life. If it doesn't interact with you, there's no reaction between any of your molecules and these other subatomic particles. It just you can't see them, you can't feel them. They're still coming right through planet Earth and you as well. So anyway, that's what mind made. Most of it is mind made how you interpret it. And that interpretation is taught to you in schools. And it becomes like a model which we all share. It works well enough, but it's the times when it doesn't work, which I like. Okay, here we go into psychic phenomena. That's why I love chatting with my friend Bernard Carr, because you know, it's not only we trust each other, because we were at the university together and kept up our friendship, but when he was president of the Psychic Research Society in London, investigating ghosts and other weird phenomena. Now there's one of those weird phenomena he was talking about, you may have seen it or heard about it, of levitating tables. I don't know why it's a table, been a big oak table and lifting up into the air. And so this group was actually experimenting with this and one day he invited one of his friends, another top scientist, these objective observers that know more about science than I would. And they were looking at this as this uh, table was levitating checking every possible trick to make sure they weren't fooling him. And then Bernard was with him. As they were looking, no strings, no electromagnets. He said, this can't be happening. It's impossible. But it was. And he said, I must have been hypnotized. That was his only theory. Because the reality was just too challenging. And I love stories like that. Now how much of our world is mind made? And how much, if, it's all, if a lot of it is mind made, it does give us the opportunity to do things like sap cancers away. Do you believe that's possible? Really? If you don't, of course, that cancer will be there and grow. This has to be you know, really a strong understanding. Anyway. Yes, go on. Yeah. Yeah. How does it happen, this psychic power and mind? How does it happen? One of the things is there's other beings in this universe which we're not aware of, and the heavenly beings, ghosts and others. The other thing is that we don't understand how much power our mind actually does have. So we don't actually know how to turn on that power and make use of it. And sometimes, you know, you, s you see some of these you know, monks I haven't seen this with nuns, but some of these monks do ridiculously um, things which can't happen, but you see it happen. One, one of those monks, 
I, I, I like telling stories as I've told before, because I never like to get any monk in trouble. And I do confess I never saw this myself, but I know that monk, I've met him many times, and he's a great monk, and also the person who told me this story, you know, she was a very good close friend. She was also a former princess in Thailand, now the granddaughter of one of the kings. And the way she told it to me, I've got no doubt that what she said was true. That was the case when she was uh, learning some meditation, going to a meditation class in Wat Bawan, uh, in uh, Bangkok. And she felt you know, a bit strange. She opened her eyes during the meditation and she saw the teacher, he was this Indonesian Theravada monk, Sudamo, he's passed away now, that there was lights coming out from his eyes. This wasn't sort of um, Hollywood, this was real, you see it yourself. Lights coming out from his eyes going into one of the other meditators. And I tell this story to monks that you think, Ajahn Brahm, can you do that please? <laughs> but you know what happened? When she saw that, it freaked her out. She was terrified. And so she got up from her seat and she never went back to the meditation class ever again. People say they're interested in seeing these things. But actually, that anything which is just so impossible, it just stirs us up way too much. You're not ready yet to see it, basically. And some people say, no, no, I can. <laughs> One of these monks that you were saying that emptiness is a superconductor. Will you be? Emptiness is a superconductor. So, which means you get into emptiness, you can do everything. You mean, you can see everything or can go everywhere? Because there's only a limited amount of things you can see. And, you know, just time-wise. But the emptiness, the stillness of the mind. That's why I want each one of you, one day at least, to get into these jars and understand what it's like. It does give you the sense of just anything's possible. You can do anything. But the point is to, you know, it's possible, but a lot of times when you're in these deep states of stillness, you don't want to do anything, even when you come out. You know, you have all the doors are open, but why go through any of them? Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Can I go back to your example of the monk flashing light to the... Oh, yeah. What's the purpose? Well, I don't know. I think it was. But then it defeat, it, it, it harm another person. So what's the whole point? I mean, yeah. The I, one okay, I shouldn't go to the last second question, but it's more. I'm really, really sincerely curious. What is the purpose then? Well, he was putting his like mind into this lady. I was probably just doing some healing. Yeah. I don't know. He may have seen the lady who had some sickness there. And you know, people were supposed to keep their eyes closed in that meditation session. And this princess, you know, she actually opened her eyes. That was not expected. But a lot of times that people just want to see like the, 
like the magic of Dharma, something which shows them this is really powerful stuff. But even in the suttas, you know, that some of these times when they tell about this monk, like there was this layman, Chitta the householder, you know, he eventually became an anagami, which is you know, uh, just one stage lower than being fully enlightened. And he was one of the monks who looked like he had powers. And so Chitta asked him, can you show me a real psychic power? And what Chitta did, and what this monk did, he said, well, you stay out here. And he, and he said, I'm, I'm going to go inside. And then he went inside the room and this light came outside. I think he left a robe outside and burnt the robe. You know, that, this psychic power of like fire coming through the keyhole of the door and lighting up something. And the reason why I thought it was a good story was Chitta, who was a very, very good Buddhist, you know, he got up, left and never came back. Psychic powers are incredibly scary. People don't understand that. If you saw something and it was real. Ooh. Okay, it's 4.30 now. So, uh, will you let me go? Oh, you got another question in the back? You've been very quiet in the corner, maybe I've not seen you. Your question? Oh, what is the jhana? The jhana is going to be the subject of uh, the next uh, word of the Buddha series. That's uh, the eighth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. So all will be revealed if you come here again in two weeks' time. <laughs> That's called marketing. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so now I usually just pay respect to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. Sangha Namah